Wasn't that wonderful? Behold, our God is seated on his throne. Uh, he takes no coffee breaks from the throne. He doesn't wander into other places. He's always on his throne. He doesn't forfeit that control for anything. He's always on his throne. Always. And in that is our only hope when life seems chaotic, right? When life seems out of control, we remember the one who is in control, seated on his throne. And we come and we adore him. And now we come to hear his word. Will you take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah chapter 31? Jeremiah chapter 31. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a Bible a hardbound black Bible somewhere in the pew around you. And the part of Jeremiah 31 that we're going to read is on page 660 of that pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, while you're turning there, I just want to remind you men that next week is uh, the deadline for signing up for the men's retreat. So, ladies, if you know your husband hasn't yet, uh, this is where the holy elbow comes in and uh, you nudge him along, reminding him this is a good thing. So, for you men, and if you have uh, high school sons that you want to bring along, October 13th and 14th, you can sign up online, or there are some cards out in the uh, foyer that you can sign up. It's going to be, I think, a very beneficial time as we think about something that affects uh, many, many men that I have encountered in my life, including the one I encounter in the mirror every day. And so I hope that uh, you will make time to be there. Jeremiah 31. Now, last week we looked at one of the darkest moments in the story of the Bible. We're in a series looking at the story of the Bible, trying to get our minds around uh, the plot points from the beginning of the end, so that, to the end, so that so that as we read the Bible, we can place what we're reading within that story. It can help set the bigger context of what God has done in redeeming sinful human beings. And last week, we looked, as I said, at one of the lowest points of the story where God's people go into exile. They have lost their land. They've lost their homes because of their sin. And yet, God's purposes are still on track. God hasn't vacated the throne, as it were. He's still there. He's still working out His purposes. And actually, He's still speaking to His people through His prophets. One of those prophets is Jeremiah. And we come to really the mountain peak of the entire prophecy of Jeremiah this morning in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Let's read that together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we come to you, your word, we pray that you will make it live to us, that you will show us yourself, that you would show us ourselves and our sin, and that you would show us our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. Uh, It's a phrase that's often used by Christians to describe a time when God seems distant. And it would probably be a a phrase used to describe uh, many of the experiences of the psalmist. Lots of psalmists, as they are suffering, sense distance from God, and they will say things like, How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? They wonder, where is God in all of this. And maybe you've wondered that as well. Maybe you wondered that even this week. Well, the Jews who are listening to Jeremiah's prophecy sense that very distance from God because they are in exile. They are in Babylon. Because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to repent, yes, but the weight of all that has happened sits heavy on their soul. And so you have a psalm like Psalm 137 that expresses this. Listen to the first four verses. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered home. On the willows, we, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captor required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? These folks have given up singing. They live with daily sorrow. They're constantly weeping. The weight of their loss of sin's consequences sits heavily on their hearts. And it's, it's in that broken state to these broken people that Jeremiah speaks, assuring them that the story isn't over. That exile is not the end. That hope is on the horizon. Because God will make a new covenant, a new relationship with His people. And before we get to the newness of the new covenant, there are a couple of things I want us to think about. The first of which is the origin of the new covenant covenant, the origin of the new covenant. Now, when God calls Jeremiah to be his prophet way back in chapter 1, he tells him what his ministry is going to be like. In Jeremiah 1, God says to him, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And quite honestly, much of the book is the destroying and the overthrowing 
It is the plucking up and the breaking down. It is quite depressing. There aren't a, a whole lot of verses in Jeremiah that are being embroidered on throw pillows or framed for the wall. Things like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow Zion completely out of the ground. You're going to be a waste. I mean, wouldn't you love to see that on a throw pillow? You're going to be a waste. Well, that's actually what most of this is, whether it's judgment on the people of God themselves or judgment on the nations around them. Most of the book is that way. But there's this section. There are little glimmers in different places. And in the middle, in, in, in chapters 30 and 31 especially, hope appears in more than just a pin dot, in something that's actually quite large, in something that uh, has just a tone about it that you can't help but feel lifted up when you hear it. Words that culminate in a new covenant. But where did it come from? Well, if we look carefully at the paragraph that we just read, you'll notice there's a phrase there that repeats seven times in four verses. And the phrase is, I will. And God speaks them. I will make a covenant. It's the covenant I will make. I will put. I will write. I will be their God. I will forgive. I will remember their sin no more. In other words, God is the origin of the new covenant. Jeremiah is, is not telling the exiles that they need to come up with a new way of relating to God. They're going to have to come up with a plan to do better next time. He doesn't say that at all. He says, no, no, no. God is going to do something new. Just as God had made the first covenant, Verse 32 says that, the covenant I made with their fathers, God is going to make this new covenant. Now, that seems very straightforward. You say, I could have read that paragraph and gotten that right out of there. Well, of course you could have. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just trying to highlight something that actually I think is very important, which is to say that human beings don't come to God on their own terms. We don't come to God to strike a deal with Him. To say, hey, God, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. That is not how it works. We don't have individual private arrangements with God. You see, in the Bible, God sets the terms of the relationship. He says what it means to be in right relationship with Him. And the thing is, we either take His way or there's no way. It's not that there are a whole bunch of ways, and God has said, well, here's the best way that you can relate to me. No, no, no. He says, you either relate to me this way or not at all. Now, that sounds like bad news, but here's the good news. If God hadn't said that, there'd be no way of relating to Him. The fact that God has said this means there is a way. There is a way to be in right relationship with Him. There is a way to have Him as our God and to be His people. The good news is that God is the origin of the covenant. 
The second thing to notice is the reason for the new covenant, all right? Look in verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So Israel and Judah, the people of God, broke the first covenant. This is why they are in exile. But the imagery here is striking. Israel is not pictured as a corrupt business partner who swindles the other out of his share. They're not pictured as a friend who stabs another friend in the back. They're pictured as a bride who breaks her wedding vows. You see, God takes Israel by the hand and rescues her up out of Egypt and marries her. But as soon as the honeymoon is over, Israel is down at the singles bar down the street giving out their number to any and every God that will come in willing to go home with any of them. Or if you're a little more tech-savvy, they've pulled out their iPhone and they're on Tinder and they're swiping right on any God, foreign God that they find. They are willing to go after any God they see. Now, you imagine that actually happening after a honeymoon with a husband and a bride, and imagine the devastation of that. That is the picture that is painted here. Well, as bad as it is, though, why, why a new covenant? Why can't they just renew the old covenant? Why can't they just, you know, just renew, recommit? Well, there's actually a twofold problem with the whole idea that renewal will be enough. The first problem lies in the covenant itself, and the second problem lies with the people, okay? The covenant, which includes the law, it's laid out in the law, what is the responsibility of Israel? Part, the first part of the law is God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. You, and then He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And uh, in essence, you know, uh, everything else is an expression of that, not having any other gods before Him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But the problem with that is that laws don't change people. There's nothing about the nature of the law that's going to change them. You just ask anybody at that California Home Depot this week where the flash mob robbery happened. Do you think the laws, the laws didn't keep those folks from going in there and looting, did they? Did the laws keep you from speeding on the way here this morning? They didn't, did they? Laws don't have that kind of power. And the law above all laws is God's law. And even though God's law is good and holy and righteous and perfect and expresses His character, it cannot change sinners. It can tell you you are a sinner. That's what Romans 3.20 says, by the law comes knowledge of sin. It can tell you you're a sinner, but it can't change the sinner. It can only show you that you are one. So there's a problem there. So renewing it won't actually change them. The second problem is in the people themselves. Now, at times, they certainly seem genuinely interested to obey God. 
they would often wholeheartedly declare, we are all in. We are going to do whatever it is that God says to do. Um, But they don't. It kind of reminds me, uh, when I was in youth ministry, uh, of, of, of there were always certain kids at the end of the week of youth camp who would come, and they would say they're ready to, quote, rededicate their lives to the Lord. And literally every camp, they were ready to rededicate their lives to the Lord. It seemed every Sunday they were ready to rededicate. It was this, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to get it right this time. I, 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 I'm, I'm going I'm to break up with that boy. I, I'm going I'm to get rid of those, that, that, that website. I'm going to do, do all those things. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I don't doubt that they're sincere, that they genuinely want it. The problem is wanting it isn't enough. The people don't have any power to change themselves. The reality is is that the whole idea of renewing the covenant isn't new itself. There had been a lot of renewals of the covenant before this one. Moses renewed the covenant with them. Joshua renewed the covenant with them. Samuel renewed the covenant with them. Hezekiah renewed the covenant with them. Josiah renewed the covenant with them. But did it stick? Well, here they are in exile, and that's actually our answer. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, you just can't do it. Here's the thing is that people get stuck in these cycles of renewal, don't they? Don't we? Of tearing apart our lives or tearing apart our families by our sin? Hitting rock bottom again, wanting to change again. And people want to genuinely do better and be better. They want to climb out of the pit they're in. They promise they won't do it again, and they want to keep that promise. And maybe that's you. And I'm glad that you would want to climb out of that pit, and I'm glad that you would want to change. But you see, just like these folks, you need more than a renewed commitment to do better. You need more than renewed effort. You need more than to make promises to God. You need more than renewal. You need what they needed. You need what actually we all need. You need something new. Something that's not just a pulling up my religious bootstraps and doing better for God from here on out. Because actually, you can't pull up your religious bootstraps because there are no straps and no boots. And we don't have feet anyway. That's how helpless we are. We need something new. And that brings us to the newness of the new covenant. Thirdly, the newness of the new covenant. Look at chapter 32, uh, chapter 32, uh, verse 32. This is not like the covenant I made with their fathers, okay? The old covenant and the new covenant are different. And there are three ways that it's different. And the words I'm going to use for these ways, all of what I actually will say is the fruit of my study, but these, these little subheadings, I, I just couldn't get away from what I heard back when I heard a sermon by David Jackman. So these three things that I'm going to mention, they're his 
the wording is his, these little headings, but the, the, the study is mine, all right? The first thing that's new is the new motivation. There's new motivation. Look at verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The law will be written on the heart. Now, you may have heard that so many times that you don't actually think about it anymore, but the first time you heard that, you know what you thought and I thought? That's odd language. What does that mean? What, what does it mean that it's actually going to be written on there? Well, actually, there's an important connection between this language and something that's already been recorded in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1, Jeremiah says this, "...the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron." With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So notice what is going to change. Sin is now written on the heart, and it's not just sketched there with a pencil. It is with a pen of iron and a diamond tip. This sin is going nowhere. It is on the tablet of the heart, but it's going, but in the new covenant, God's law will be written on the heart. Now, what does that mean then? Well, remember in the Bible, the heart is the control center of life. It is not simply an emotion factory as we as a culture seem to think that it is. It is the fountainhead of all of life. So Jesus says, our thoughts come from our heart, our words come from our heart. Our actions come from our heart. It is, it is the source. That's why Proverbs 4 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life. So to have sin written on our heart then, on the control center of life, means that the fundamental setting of the heart is sin. That's what it means to have sin written on your heart. It is like the operating system on your computer or on your phone. The operating system determines how the computer works and what it can do and all those kinds of things. And beyond that, I can tell you nothing about operating systems. But the default operating system of the human heart is sin. We sin in our words. We sin in our thoughts. We sin in our deeds. We, we cannot measure up. Even our best deeds are filthy rags before God. Why? Because the default operating system of the human heart is sin. So that even when I try to do good things, I can do it for the wrong reasons. I can do it to please myself. I can do it to please you. I can get, do it to get a reputation. I can do it to try to earn favor with God. I can do it for hundreds of wrong reasons. But the default operating system of the human heart is sin. And what Jeremiah is saying is with the new covenant comes a new operating system. God's law written on the heart motivating us to love God with all that we have, to love others. You see, the law had been written on stone tablets. Uh, hanging outside the courthouse, if you like. Can I tell you what, what the thing about uh, commandments written on stone tablets hanging outside the courthouse or hanging up in your yard or hanging up anywhere else? Can I tell you what, it, what the deal is? They're easy to ignore if they're out there. 
You just walk right past them because they're outside of you. Why would you ever think? I mean, why? I can just bypass that one. I need to tell this little white lie. I need to take a little time from my employer so I can do X, Y, Z, whatever it is. The law that's out there is easy to ignore. In the new covenant, the law is not out there. It's in here. That's why if you're a Christian, you feel convicted when you sin. Because it's in here. That's why if you're a Christian, you actually want to please God. Because it's written in here. It's not out there somewhere. There's a new motivation. Now, Jeremiah's contemporary, the prophet who worked alongside him, was, uh, was working is Ezekiel, and he puts it this way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There it is. Cause you. A new heart. This newness of heart will cause you to walk in his statutes. Cause you to be careful to obey. You see, under the new covenant, obedience won't be motivated from the outside, but from the inside. Uh, when I was growing up, my brother and I took turns. Um, we each we had to alternate weeks of washing the dishes. All right, and so uh, uh, when when Sunday came is the most depressing day of the week. Uh, not because we went to church, though at the time I wasn't a Christian and that was pretty bad. Uh, but the the reason why Sunday was so depressing was for two reasons. One, your week of doing the dishes began on Sunday, and two, Sunday was always a giant meal with lots of dishes, all right? And so you wash the dishes, and, but you don't just wash the dishes because my dear sweet mom would be right there to check those dishes as soon as we got done. And if we didn't do it right, she would say, now go back and do it again. This is not, this, I could put it, you could put it in the drawer. Two days later, she would find it and say, we use this on Sunday. Toby, Get back down here. You didn't do this right. All the motivation was from the outside. The motivation for me to do right was from the outside. Now, just in common grace, as I got older, I just, I do the exact same thing to myself. I'm like looking at dishes. I'm like, this is not good enough. This has to actually be cleaned better. And there are things that won't come out, even, even if like nuclear war breaks out. Nothing is getting all, this thing off this pan, and yet I'm there scrubbing and scrubbing. Why? Because I just I want to get it off. I want to clean the dishes. Now, that's just a natural development, but that's what happens in a much more significant way under the new covenant. No longer is the law outside of us saying, do this, do that, do this. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. The law is inside us saying, love God, love Him, cherish Him, go after Him. Nothing is better than Him. There's a new motivation with the new covenant. Secondly, there's a new intimacy. The end of verse 33 says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, this is very personal, very intimate language. 
in a, very, in a general sense, God cares for all human beings, but He loves and cares for His people in a special way. When I go to a Mooresville Christian Academy soccer game, I cheer for the whole team. The whole team. I want them all to do well. When, some, when one of the players gets hurt, I care about it. If, if there's an unfair call, I care about it. But there's one player in particular that if he's treated unfairly, I'm a lot faster to bow up. If he gets hurt, I hold my wife back from going onto the field. And that one player is my son. I am his, and he is mine. And that sets him apart from all the other players on the field. That's the kind of thing that God's saying. Of all of the people, you'll be my people, and I'll be your God. Now, in some ways, that's already true, but there's a newness here. Verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. All His people will know Him. This is not primarily an intellectual knowledge so much as it is an intimacy. This kind of knowing is used to speak about the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. It is the most personal, intimate, close relationship that there is. You remember what Ezekiel said? God will put His Spirit in them. In the New Covenant, God just won't be near us. He won't just be in the midst of us like the tabernacle was in the midst of the camp. He will be in us. His Spirit will come to live in us, dwelling in us. He will bind Himself to us, and we will be bound to Him. That kind of intimacy which will never be shattered. Isn't that wonderful? The creator of the universe, the one that we sing, Behold our God, seated on His throne, come let us adore Him, that makes us want to cast our eyes down and get down on our knees and prostrate ourselves. He says, I'm with you, and you're with me. And He lives within us. Is it any wonder that John writes, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? The very Spirit of God dwelling in us. And so, because of that intimacy, no longer will anybody need to teach somebody else that's part of this new covenant that they need to know the Lord. All will know Him. What's interesting is that if you go backwards in the Bible to places like Jeremiah 9 or places like Judges 2, the Bible actually tells us that the Israelites didn't know the Lord. They didn't know Him. That could actually be said of Israelites. They didn't know the Lord. Now, they could tell you things about God. They could sit down with coffee and talk theology. They could tell you the stories of what He's done, but they don't actually know Him. They know Him from the outside. They don't know Him in a relationship. 
That's why when somebody talks about your friend and they don't even know your friend, they just heard something about your friend, they start talking, you say, no, 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 you don't even know her. You don't know her like I know her. The kind, the kind of knowledge that they have is an insider knowledge. This is what the new covenant gives. Intimate knowledge. Insider knowledge. And in the new covenant, all will know him. As an aside, this is why it matters who we baptize. Because those we baptize are those that know Him. They're part of the New Covenant community. And to be part of the New Covenant community, you must know the Lord in this intimate way. You must know Him personally. You must have submitted to Him. This is why we don't baptize just anyone who wants to be baptized. This is why, uh, Allie, we won't baptize uh, little Annabelle. Because Annabelle doesn't yet know the Lord. We, we pray that Annabelle will know the Lord, don't we? We sure do. But baptism is for those who know the Lord. They're part of the new covenant community. And in the new covenant, all will know the Lord. The smallest child who trusts in Jesus. Isn't it wonderful? The oldest man or woman who finally sees they need a Savior. All will know Him. The richest in the community, the poorest in the community, the high school dropout and the Ph.D., all will equally know the Lord. There is an intimacy with God. And finally, there's a new assurance, a new assurance. How is it that people will know God, that they will truly know Him? And the answer is actually in forgiveness. The chasm of sin that divides God and man will be permanently removed. Look at the end of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, iniquity speaks of our twisted nature, of our perversity. Sin here refers to specific acts that miss the mark of God's standards. They never hit the bullseye. And whether it's our nature or our actions, both actually separate us from God. Now, the idea of forgiveness is not a new idea. Forgiveness has been prayed for and expressed under the Old Covenant. Sacrifices are made, and forgiveness is given on the basis of those sacrifices. But it has to happen repeatedly, daily, weekly, yearly. In other words, these sins have been covered up, but not taken away. Because animal sacrifices can never make complete atonement for a human being. Just as your dog is not your child, an animal cannot die in a place of a human being. But the new covenant will be new in this. The promise of forgiveness is permanent. Did you hear what God says? I will remember their sin when? No more. No more. 
Now, to say that God won't remember doesn't mean that suddenly there's a deficiency in God's brain. It's not like me not remembering certain things. When God said to remember in the Bible means to bring something up in order to act on it. Remembering means action. So, husbands, if your wife's birthday comes and goes, and you do nothing, I can guarantee you it doesn't matter that you can call up the date of her birthday in your brain. If you don't act, then in her mind you haven't remembered it. Understand? That's what remembering is. And actually, it's a glorious lack of remembering here in verse 34. God will not remember sin. He'll never bring it up to you again, ever. He's never going to act on it. He'll remember it no more. That better be good news to some of us. Because when we all look at our own lives, we know how long the list is that you could bring up. Because I bring it up to myself. And the devil seems to bring it up to me. And sometimes other people will help you along and bring it up to you. But you know who never will? God. God will never bring it up again. God will never act on it again. It may get you canceled in this culture, but it will not get you canceled with God. God doesn't cancel the new covenant. Isn't that glorious? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And actually, that would be good news for these folks who are in Babylon. Because back in chapter 29, Jeremiah's already said that God is going to bring them out of exile and actually bring judgment on Babylon. But I mean, if it's me and I'm going out of Babylon back, I might be thinking, well, couldn't this just happen all again? Couldn't we just go so bad again that here we are, we're going to be back in exile, and all of history is just going to be back in exile, then get back out, then back in exile, and get back out? God says, no, 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 you don't understand. Once the new covenant comes, there's no more exile. No more exile. Because I'll remember your sin no more. That's glorious. And as good a news as that was for the exiles, the thing is that new covenant never came in their day. It was established about 600 years later. And in a small upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus gathers with his 12 disciples to share the Passover meal. And Jesus reinterprets it for them to show them that actually this Passover points to Christ, and it points to the new covenant. So that after breaking bread and sharing it with them, Jesus would say, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood initiates the new covenant. It is signed, sealed, and delivered 
by his death on the cross. What animal sacrifices could not do, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ does perfectly. That is the glory of the new covenant. And here's the thing. Here's the insider secret. At the cross, our sins were remembered. At the cross, our sins were remembered. They were brought up, not to lay them on our sheet of charges, but to lay them on Christ. They were brought up, and they were laid on Jesus, and the Father acted on it. And He poured out His wrath and His justice and His punishment on Christ for us for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can know your sin was remembered at the cross, and now it's forgotten forever. There is no better news that I could deliver to you today about the world, about your finances, about your health, about your relationships with other human beings. There is no other news better than this news. Our sin was remembered at the cross, and now it's forever forgotten. That is the news that the gospel brings to us, that Jesus' sacrifice is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Hebrews 9 says, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The the price, friends, has been paid. The sacrifice has been made, and it is enough. Not just enough for those from the nation of Israel, though that's who these words are originally spoken to, But as the Bible unfolds, you find out this new covenant doesn't just include them. It's for the world. All who trust in Jesus. Dear friend, I could tell you there's nothing better you could do today than to take hold of Jesus by faith. Because when you do, you will find a new heart that is motivated to love and please God. You will find new intimacy with God. You will be able to call Him Father even as He calls you His child. You will find new assurance of forgiveness, permanent forgiveness, your sin buried in the depths of a sea that can never be dug out again. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He cast our sin. But only in Jesus Christ. You see, apart from Jesus, there'd be no way. When Jesus says, I am the way, it's not a statement of superiority so much as it's a statement of opportunity. There was no way, but in Jesus there is. Will you trust in Him today? Let's bow to pray. As we bow to pray, um, before I actually pray, I just, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, just take a moment to reflect on all that God's done for you in Christ. Think of who you were 
Think of how far from God you were. Think of how hopeless you were and how He saved you. And just in your heart, thank Him and give Him praise for that. And maybe you're not trusting in Jesus. Maybe you are not a Christian. Dear friend, God's arms are open to all who come to Him by faith. And if you hear all that God has done in this new covenant in Jesus Christ, providing new motivation, new intimacy, new assurance of forgiveness, and that's what you want, I would encourage you to come to Him. You may even pray something like this, Lord, I'm a sinner by nature and by choice, and I deserve Your punishment, but I'm asking for Your mercy. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for me, and I'm asking You to forgive me and save me. Make me new. Our Father, we thank You for these words, for the promise of a covenant that You give and You accomplish through Your Son to give the world that is in exile from you hope. The hope of new motivation. Not a law that only shows us that we are wrong from the outside, but a new motivation of heart to love and please you, a new operating system for life. That we have a new intimacy with you. You are our God, and we are your people, and we know you, and we have a new assurance of forgiveness that is permanent, once and for all paid for in the death of Jesus. Thank you for all these things, Lord. Help us now, even as we remember the death of the Lord Jesus, that it will not simply be a mental recall, that we will bring it up in our hearts in order to act on it, to walk by faith and not by sight, to live for you. Stir our hearts once again as we remember him. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to move right into our observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Willie, I failed to get my element.